Uh, We're starting a new series today in the Psalms that's going to take us right up to Advent. We're beginning with Psalm 46, uh, a psalm that really focuses on uh, living with our troubles. And I think it would be helpful to start off by admitting that when it comes to our competence and our capacity to handle our troubles, we're in trouble. So before I get into the particulars of Psalm 46, I think it would be helpful to orient ourselves with three kind of broad principles about dealing with troubles and tribulations in life. First of all, I think we need to recognize that we fail to recognize trouble as trouble. Uh, Secondly, how easily we forget that trouble is part and parcel of life. And thirdly, how we are utterly inadequate to handle our troubles. Uh, Now, if you were to ask me, you know, what the most terrifying passage, terrifying verse in the Bible is, uh, I might tell you that it's Proverbs 14.12, which is repeated in Proverbs 16.25, which is this. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That is a verse that says we are susceptible, and I would even go so far as to say prone, to not recognizing trouble for what it is. So much so that we can have a perspective on life, we can set a bearing in life in which we think we are headed in, in the right direction, in, in the, on the path toward goodness and prosperity and the good life, only to find out in the end that we have made our way straight to death. And that principle is illustrated in some of the most tragic passages in the Bible, whether it's the man who built larger and larger barns to store up his prosperity, you know, to kind of secure the good life for himself, only to find out that that very night his soul was required of him. Or the people who came to Jesus filled with a sense of religious accomplishment, saying, Lord, Lord, look at all that we've done in your name, only to hear from Jesus himself, away from me, I never knew you. Or the simple fact that that so many of the most religiously dedicated Bible-educated people on the planet not only did not recognize Jesus when he showed up, but they actively worked against him and put him to his death. Have mercy. All of those are stories of people who were going away that seemed right, but ended up being deadly, being utterly wrong. In fact, what the scripture asserts, turns out science confirms. Uh, I read an article recently by a retired professor of psychology from Cornell University, a leading expert in human cognition, a guy named David Dunning. Uh, and the title of the article is, We Are All Confident Idiots. And he concludes the article with this statement. The built-in features of our brains and the life experiences we accumulate do, in fact, fill our heads with immense knowledge. What they do not confer is insight into the dimensions of our ignorance. As such, wisdom may not involve facts and formulas so much as the ability to recognize when a limit has been reached. Stumbling through all our cognitive clutter just to recognize a true I don't know may constitute, may not constitute failure as much as it does an enviable success. 
a crucial signpost that shows we are traveling in the right direction toward the truth. Ironically, our ability to recognize trouble as trouble is to understand, first of all, that I'm terrible at doing that. (laughs) That I'm already in trouble by that very fact that I need help outside of myself. Secondly, the Bible dispenses with the idea that our troubles are anomalies, that there's somehow these fleeting disruptions to an otherwise pleasant and well-controlled life that ought to be ours by right. In Cormac McCarthy's novel, The Road, the main character wisely observes that if trouble comes when you least expect it, then maybe the thing to do is to always expect it. Among the most pointed passages on this is John 16, where Jesus assures his disciples that in this world, you will have tribulation. You will have trouble. One of the more curious things about all the stuff flying around in emails and on social media and everywhere else as it relates to our present predicament with our pandemic is this kind of baseline posture that people like us should ever have to endure such a thing. How dare the pandemic treat us this way? I mean, sure, people since time immemorial have had to deal with these things, but we invented Google. We invented the GPS. We invented massage chairs. But the fact remains that in this world, you'll have troubles. You'll have tribulation. Which leads me to the third point, that we are inadequate of taking care of our own troubles. We're not sufficient to the task. We're not as strong as we think we are. We're not as wise as we think we are. We're far more frail and fragile than we'd like to believe. So going a little further in John 16, immediately after Jesus assures us that in this world you will have tribulation, he says, take heart. Be strong, be assured, be encouraged, right? And what does he say to take heart in? Well, I'll tell you what he says we're not to take heart in. We're not to take heart in that he has given us 10 principles for successful tribulation-free living. Or that he has assured us that he will be our co-pilot. Or that we'll be exempt from tribulation if only our faith is strong enough. In fact, he doesn't tell us to take heart in anything about us. In what we must do or can do or will one day maybe possibly be able to do. He says instead, take heart in me and what I've done. Take heart. I have overcome the world. So I want to look at Psalm 46 to see essentially just that. What has the Lord done for his people? What does the Lord do for a people who are in trouble and may not even know it and are inadequate to the task? In particular, I want to look at three characteristics of God in this psalm. I want to see that we worship a very present God, that we worship a relentlessly pursuing God, and thirdly, that we worship a reigning and all-powerful God. The psalm begins in praise to God as our refuge and our strength, and it's worth sussing those out because those two things aren't exactly the same. Uh, On the one hand, a refuge is a place to which one flees when threatened. The first order of business in this psalm is run. And know where to run. Run to the Lord. Rush to his word. Go to him as your refuge. But not only a refuge, but also go to him as your strength. Uh, As refuge, he's the place to which you flee. But as strength, you go to the place from which you fight. 
You go to the one who, in fact, fights for you. God is revealing himself in half a verse as both fortress and fighter, protector and warrior in full and equal measure. And the Hebrew here is really emphatic. It's quite intense on this point. It doesn't come across as clearly in English, but some of your translations might say something like, God himself is a refuge and a strength. And it's put so forcefully in that way so that we would know that God is refuge and strength uniquely, utterly. It wouldn't be pushing our translations too far to say there is no other refuge and strength. And here's the thing, when confronted with that truth, I think we're confronted with something else. We're confronted with a test. And the test is this. When the troubles come, where do you run? When the heat is on, where do you go? In your heart, in your life, where do I go? What are we dashing off to as our functional refuge? What are we dashing off to as our functional strength? And, and it can be all kinds of things, right? It can be our friends or our funds. It can be our education or our reputation. It can be anything that we have become convinced will protect us from the troubles or equip us to drive them away. And, and you know, look, most of those things are not to be despised, nor are they to be discarded. I'm grateful for funds and I'm grateful for friends. We can be thankful for the good gifts that those things are, but what we need to know and what the psalmist is telling us we need to know for sure is what those things will never be for any of us is a refuge or a strength. Because the Lord alone is that uniquely and utterly. There is no other true refuge. There is no other strength. Now look, if we stopped there, if the psalm ended there, uh, we, would, we would know a great truth about God that he is refuge and strength, but we might still begin to think that it is on us to carry out the arduous task of getting to him. I don't know if you've seen this movie, 1917. It's a movie about World War I. Um, and basically, it is a movie with a guy who is doing nothing but running to get to the refuge and the strength. Um, he is running as fast as he can to dodge the bombs, to avoid the gas, to avoid getting shot, to get through the barbed wire so that he can finally get into the trench with his people and be safe and be able to fight the enemy. And you know, you walk out of that movie and it's like, man, I need, I need to go take a nap. So it might be, you know, that that, that is our mentality. That even if you do believe that there is no other refuge or strength outside the Lord, you still feel like it's on you to muscle your way into his presence and his good graces. But here's the thing, reading on, we discover that God is not only our refuge and our strength, but also, gloriously and graciously, a very present help in trouble. Very present. There's a place in Isaiah that helps us, I think, kind of flesh this out and understand it better. It's in Isaiah 55 where the prophet calls on the people to seek the Lord while he may be found and to call upon him while he is near. And Isaiah spoke that into a world very much like our own, uh, to a people harassed and helpless and burdened with the task of trying to get the attention and earn the affection of the gods of the world in order to secure the good life. If only they scramble hard enough and scream loud enough in order to somehow 
work my way from the here of my present troubles to the there of divine favor and the good life. So in saying what he says, that God is near, call upon him while he is near. He is, Isaiah is saying something utterly radical and it resonates in the psalm. That you don't have to work to get yourself from here to there because God is near. He's right there. He is ready to be found, eager to receive anyone who comes to him and those who come to him, he will never turn away. He doesn't burden us with first getting out of our troubles like the guy in 1917 had to do, dodging the bombs and not inhaling the gas and crawling through the barbed wire and hoping that he doesn't get shot so that we can finally dive into the refuge and strength that is our Lord. Because the Lord is there. Not only present, but the psalmist says, very present, right there with his people, not just in the triumphs, but in their troubles. And the psalmist loves this truth so much that He's kind of like what I often do when I go out to eat in Santa Fe. I take a bite, and then I just savor it for a while. (laughs) That's what he does in the psalm. For the next two verses, he just savors the truth that ours is a God who is a very present help in trouble. And he invites us to savor that along with him by giving us a picture. A picture that's kind of like a two-paneled picture, a diptych, right? With, With... One panel that shows this picture and another right next to it. And on the first panel, he shows us basically the most reliable things in the world. Things so reliable that you don't even give them a second thought. So he gives us a picture of the solid ground you stand on, the mountains. um, Trustworthy things, durable things, reliable things. I'm not standing up here right now thinking at all that I may suddenly be swallowed up by this wood floor. Because it's solid, it's reliable, utterly. But right next to that, he shows us something chaotic, churning, threatening, destructive, a raging ocean. And he puts those two pictures side by side to get us again, savoring along with him the truth that, a God, that our God is a very present help in trouble. And you half expect with that illustration for the psalmist to say something like, the Lord is as reliable as the ground beneath your feet. He is reliable as the Sangre de Cristo mountains, Right? And he's nothing like the chaotic sea. But he doesn't do that. He throws us something of a curve. Instead, he says, he shows us that the things that we assume to be steadfast and reliable are not steadfast and reliable. They fall apart. They get, the, the solid ground we stand on and the mountains get swallowed up by that churning ocean. So you end up with this picture where nothing is steady. Nothing is solid. Nothing is reliable. Everything falls apart. So how does that picture get us savoring that the truth is, the truth that God is a very present help in trouble in this way? The psalmist wants us to know that God is infinitely more reliable than our greatest trusts in life. Infinitely more. So that we would be graciously shaken from the delusion that there is any refuge or strength or greater help than is to be found in the Lord. And maybe, just maybe, that we could take a good hard look at our lives and look upon whatever we imagine to be something like the good solid earth beneath my feet and the strong mountains to which I might flee for my life. 
knowing that at the end of the day, they can't last, they can't uphold my life, and that sooner or later, all of it falls into the sea. But knowing that the Lord himself is a very present help in trouble in this life and the next. Now, the psalmist gives us that picture that we would relish the steadfastness of the Lord to the end that we wouldn't fear. But here's, you know, my problem, and maybe it's yours too. My fears are not easily managed. They are something like, if you told me, you know, John, don't have any fears, it's like saying, don't think of a pink elephant. They're there. They're right there. Like it or not, they just show up, and they grip me, and they drag me down with them. They're wild animals. You know, the other night, we let our dog out to feed him, you know, before he, or for him to go to the bathroom before we put him away for the night. And in a nanosecond, he got sprayed by a skunk. Just like that. That's what my fears are like. They just show up, and they spray me in the face. They're not easily managed. Like it or not, there they are. I'm a lot more frail and skittish and fearful and unbelieving than I'd like to admit. But the good news is, is that the Lord knows that about us. He knows that's actually very true of us. So he continues in showing that not only is he very present, but he is also a God who relentlessly pursues. And the particular way he talks about this pursuit is that he is a God who floods his people with grace, floods them. Um, floods figure pretty prominently in this psalm. We just saw in verse 3, the floods that are uh, roar and foam and the, the mountains that tremble at their swelling. But in verse 4, there's a very different kind of flood, waters that don't pose a threat, but instead provide for thriving. Um, we know better than most here in the Southwest that there's nothing more critical to the life of the city than rain and water. You might remember two or three years ago, Cape Town, South Africa had such a profound water crisis uh, that they had to contemplate what it would mean to be a city with no water. They actually had a countdown to what they called day zero. You know, the day when there would be no water for that city of half a million people. Now, the psalmist tells us that there is a river and that it flows into the city of God. This is a reference to Jerusalem. But, but not just Jerusalem, not just the dot on the map, but the heavenly Jerusalem, that, so, that, so that they would know as residents of that city that the city in which they live is something like a sacrament, that it, it's a physical, tangible sign that points to a greater spiritual reality. It's what Paul calls in Galatians 4, the Jerusalem above, the, the communion of saints, God with his people, the people with God, the church. And, and look, when it came to Jerusalem, and we saw this in Nehemiah as the enemies were constantly mocking the, that city and its leaders, you know, it's like, this is your city? This is pitiful. When it came to Jerusalem, there was nothing about it that, that would have made it a natural, attractive place to build a city. And certainly some would say it's a little bit embarrassing that, you know, this is our great representative place where we say God dwells. And the psalmist says, it's a, and yet it's a city with a river that flows into it. And that's a bit of a head-scratcher because Jerusalem never has had and still does not have a river going to it or through it. Jerusalem was a city that always had day zero hanging over it, and yet the psalmist insists it's got a river, an ever-flowing, inexhaustible artery of life gushing into it. 
And what is that life? That life is this, that God has chosen to make it his holy habitation. That, that, that he, this is the place where he is demonstrating that he is a God very present in our troubles, very near, in the midst of her, so that that city shall not be moved, so that that city knows the Lord as its source of life and nothing, none of the props that we might say, well, this is what makes for a prosperous city. He's the reason it rejoices. Now, just as floods show up twice in this psalm, so does this idea of being moved. The first time was when we saw uh, that things which we thought could never be moved, moved. Solid ground beneath our feet, the mountains into the sea. Um, but now, the city, which looks like, uh, looks for all the world like a civil engineering nightmare destined to, be, to crumble into a ghost town, uh, becomes the place that can never be moved. And the reason it can never be moved is because its life is in the Lord. And its, its immovability is particularly striking when you see what it comes up against. It really gets battered, not from a raging sea, but the psalmist says, from the chaos of a raging humanity. The nations rage, the kingdoms totter, but the city isn't moved because God is with her and he's established his justice there. And, and this is basically how the rest of the psalm plays out. God fighting for his people by bringing judgment, by bringing justice, bringing desolations, but desolations in which the instruments of war are not cranked up and built, but which, in which they are destroyed. Breaking the bow, shattering the spear, burning the chariots with fire. And all the same, you know, I... When it comes to the judgment of God, and I've been told this, you know, many times, and I've, I've, there have been times where I've thought this myself, you know, where people say, you know, that's the thing I don't like about your Bible. That's the thing I don't like about the church. That's the thing I don't like about your belief in God and the Christian faith. I don't like this idea of a God who judges. And, and you know, I get that to a great degree because some of us grew up in churches where all we learned about God is that he's angry. He's not only angry, he's irritable. Uh, he's got a killer surveillance system and, a, and an itchy trigger finger. So you better watch out. But we see in this psalm and in the Bible overall but that, that, that the judgment of God isn't merely taught. It's actually celebrated. And, you know, we, we have to ask, why is that? And, you know, the first thing that needs to be said is it can be celebrated because God's judgment is not like ours. It's good to remember the wisdom of Karl Barth, who said, God is not man, shouted in a louder voice. His judgment aren't like ours, or yours or mine. They're, they're not imperfect. They're not impulsive. They're not deficient or destructive, grudging and graceless. That's what my judgment looks like. He's not a God who randomly lashes out and blows up and misjudges and messes everything up and acts out of his own interests and makes sure that you pay. God's judgment instead is perfect, it is holy, it is carried out so that whatever he is doing always terminates to the good in perfect righteousness and justice and ultimately in peace. And, and you know, looked at that way, don't we long for that? Isn't that a cause for celebration? Perfect justice? Lord, bring it swiftly. Make it true. Don't we long for just verdicts, for fair treatment, for equity, for, you know, definitive and peaceable ends to our conflicts? 
understanding and perfect reconciliation and resolution? Don't we, don't we ache when the innocent are condemned and when the scales of justice are tilted and, you know, when, when things that ought to be resolved just never get resolved and when, you know, the bad guys get off scot-free? Don't we ache when that happens? If we don't feel that ache, I want to say it's possible we're not sensible to conditions. You know, with no sorrow for the way things are and no longing for the way they ought to be, that is cynicism. The cynicism where we begin to think this is as good as it gets. Well, the Bible shakes us out of that cynicism by giving us the great consoling truth that ours is not a powerless, cruel, or cynical God, but a God of justice who will make all things right perfectly. And look, I hope, I hope that kind of haunts us every week when we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what we're praying for. The perfect judgment of God, this perfect justice, because we're calling about the sovereign God to make things as they ought to bring, be, to, to bring his perfect justice to bear so that all the sad things come untrue. So that his kingdom would grow in advance and prevail in this groaning world to the glory of his name until he returns. So when you see that the nations rage and the kingdoms totter, well, the nations rage uh, because they've not found a real and reliable refuge, a real strength, a present help in trouble. They rage because there is nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide and no one to fight for but themselves. Their kingdoms totter under that. Everything falls apart in despair and defiance and rage. What, it's, it's what one writer calls the inherent, inherent instability of evil. An evil to which God is not inattentive. He confronts the storm of that raging world with his voice. We sang the psalm earlier that, was in, that Luther wrote, uh, inspi uh, inspired by this very song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And we sang of the word above all earthly powers. Above them. And look, we've, if you read this psalm, I mean, it is animated with the monumental powers of the earth giving way, of mountains disintegrating, of seas roaring, of raging nations, of tottering kingdoms. But God's word, it turns out, is supreme over them all. The power which called creation into existence and which possesses the power to call it all out of existence. Think about that the next time you read your Bible. And it is at precisely this moment when all, the all these powers, hitting a, with, with all these powers kind of hitting a fever pitch right at the moment that if any of us had any sense at all, we would be diving under our pews and lashing ourselves to our kneelers. At that moment comes this invitation. Come and see. Come behold. The psalmist uses actually a special word here, a word used mostly by the prophets calling upon us to behold, which is to say, come and see what can only be seen by way of divine revealing, by way of God unveiling something to you and me through his word to which we would otherwise be blind. He invites us to see, with God's help, the works of the Lord, the great works of the Lord. And, and when I first read that, I thought, well, I, I see the works of the Lord all the time. I live in New, northern New Mexico, the most beautiful place in the world. I see the sunsets. I see the beauty of the mountains. I, 
you know, because I work with Greg Schneeberger, I sit down regularly with chili rellenos and, dare into, and stare into the beauty of, you know, red and green chili. What's more glorious than that? All the, you know, all the stuff in our world that John Calvin calls the dazzling theater of God's creation. And those are great works, but believe it or not, the psalmist is saying, actually, there's, there's something far more glorious for us to behold. Far greater. Greater vistas to see than what you can see in God's creation is in what we see in his salvation. It's the most beautiful thing. He says, behold the God who makes wars to cease to the end of the earth, who, who doesn't just end the hostilities, but establishes true and everlasting perfect peace, what the Hebrews call shalom, well-being. He conveys a great gift to us that we might be still and know that I am God. In light of all the turmoil and the troubles and trials that precede that, I wonder if we can, can get our arms around the full implications of, what it mean, of what's intended here. Not, not merely, look, I mean, that's a verse that finds itself on a lot of refrigerators, doesn't it? Be still and know that I am God. It's not merely a call to be soothed. It's a call to surrender. And, and that's good news. Because it seems to me that, not, that we're not merely saved by grace, but we're also subdued by it. And, and I don't know about you, but when it comes to me managing my own life and, and the restlessness that's there, I mean, I get up in the morning and I am immediately burdened with the worries of the day. And they are with me when my head hits the pillow. There is a restlessness that comes with trying to manage my own life. Trying to be my own refuge, running to my own strengths. And I suspect... And I will speak to myself, and you can judge this for yourself. I suspect that underneath the restlessness is a kind of rage that is no less chaotic and no less destructive than the powers that are raging in this psalm. It is a rage that drives me to think that my ways are better than God's ways, to think that there are greater refuges, stronger strengths, a rage that basically drives me in the direction of trying to make a life for myself, of imagining that I can be self-sufficient. And I find that that kind of life leaves me raging and tottering. And it is exhausting. And I'm thankful that God says, be still and know that I am God as a call for me to surrender to all that. To be still, quit raging. To know that he, not me, is God, right? It's grace to come to be subdued by the one true king who actually loves me. To be set free from every other kingdom whose rule is tottering and tyrannical and whose inevitable end is destruction. The prayer ends in a refrain. It's actually repeated a couple of times. First in verse 7, and then here is the final word. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It's easy to miss, but the psalmist identifies God here at the end, not as the God of Abraham, not as the God of Isaac, but as the God of Jacob. Um, now, he not only didn't have to put it that way, you kind of have to wonder why he would ever put it that way. 
Because if you know anything about Jacob, he was, not only the, he was not merely the least impressive of the patriarchs, and it's not only embarrassing that he's counted among the patriarchs, it's kind of embarrassing that he's in the Bible. Jacob was a schemer. He was always looking for shortcuts to salvation. He was always running to sham securities, to rip off refuges. He was always tottering and raging and looking for some way other than God's way. So please don't miss this as we look at this psalm's final word. God identifies himself as the God of Jacob because God loves to be called the God of the Jacobs. He loves that. He loves to identify with people like that. He loves to put his arm around Jacob and say, this is my son and I am his father. Why? Because the Lord wants us to know that he's with us with us in the very same way he was with Jacob, loving us not because we've proven ourselves lovable or shown our loyalty or fulfilled our promises or somehow on the path to perfection by our own efforts, not because of who we are or hope to be or because of who we one day, you know, will make ourselves into, into being, but because of who he is perfectly and eternally. God of Jacob. On the day he died... As he entered his last hours on this earth, the voice of the great preacher and evangelist John Wesley had become so weak that uh, the people in the room couldn't even understand him, even if, if they were right next to his mouth. But at the very end, the story goes, he managed to gather together all the strength he could muster. And he cried out, the best of all is God is with us. And the story goes that he raised his hand, weak and trembling as it was, a hand he hadn't raised in weeks, and he waved it in triumph and he said it even louder, the best of all, God is with us. And I don't know what life is like for you right now, if it's one of enjoyment or if it is an exercise in endurance. But can you say, in the joys and the sorrows and in the storms and in the stillness, stillness that best of all, God is with us. We, we've all had to consider, I think, a, a critical question this morning. What, what do I run to as my refuge and my strength? What am I staking my life on? And my prayer here this morning is that we would all know that apart from the Lord who is very present, who pursues us relentlessly with grace, who alone has the power to save, it's not a matter of if other refuges and strengths will fail us. It's only a matter of when. I'm grateful that God brings to our church people who are considering these things, questioning these things, people who have not yet put their faith in, in the Lord Jesus. If that's where you are this morning, I want you to know that he's with us. He, he's actually already run to you. He's ready to receive you and requires nothing uh, from you other than that you simply turn from all the other trusts that will fail you and put your trust in him who is the only refuge and strength, the very present help in trouble. And if the Lord's at work in your heart in that way, you know, instead of coming to the, to, the, to the table today, come to me or one of the elders and we would like to talk to you about what the Lord's doing and get you to this table as quickly as possible and walk with you as you begin your walk with Jesus if your faith is in Jesus, I want to urge you to come to the table rejoicing and resting in him as Emmanuel, as God with us in the meal. 
remembering that we didn't earn our place here, but that he came for all of us, scheming and scrambling and sham self-saving Jacobs, giving himself as refuge and strength and very present help and trouble. He is with us here and now and even to the end of the age. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you. I thank you for the good news of the gospel. I thank you how it cleanses us from our sin and also how it frees us from our striving, which is killing us. And Lord, we talk about the gospel in all kinds of ways. We certainly talk about it in terms of forgiveness, and that's appropriate. But would we also know the freedom of not having to make a life for ourselves because Jesus You have given it to us abundantly, eternally, and forever. And here at this table, we partake of a taste in this life of the life to come, where we will sit with you at your table, where sin will be no more, and we will feast on the richest affair in the presence of our God and King. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for your presence, your relentless pursuit, and your great power to save and hold us and preserve us until we are with you in the end. So Lord, give us grace as we come to this table and use it not only just in our personal walk, but to bring blessing to many, that they would know you and walk with you. In Jesus' name, amen.